This is an ABC podcast. What kind of responsibility do rich people have to give back? And how much should they be giving back? A million dollars? A billion? What about the whole company? G'day, it's Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, you're going to hear about the billionaire who's no longer a billionaire, actually, after donating his world-famous company to help fight climate change. Also coming up, the historic flag flying in a regional community that's got a bunch of people pissed. You're going to hear why the council's refusing to take it down. But first... Hack. All the students have now sat down. Yeah, remember those wild videos of Sri Lankan protesters taking over their president's palace earlier this year and swimming in his pool? The people forced the president out of power and they were celebrating it as a massive win after months of struggles in the country. But it's time to go back to Sri Lanka because a new president's taken over and he's cracking down on those protesters. More than 150 have been arrested. Some student leaders are even facing terrorism charges. Hey, there's only one person we'd go to for a story like this, and it's your old host here at Hack, the ABC's South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias. Avani spent a lot of the past few months with young people in Sri Lanka, and she's even interviewed the new president for a big foreign correspondent program. And as you're about to hear, Av kind of got caught up in the middle of it all with her crew. I'm at a university in Colombo. It looks pretty standard, a few tables and chairs in classrooms, some trophies and cabinets, but I've had to come here secretly to meet students who've been on the front line of Sri Lanka's massive protests. Yeah, so they've stationed police and military at the gates of universities to get information about the whereabouts of student leaders. This is Vasantha Mudaligay. He's the head of the Inter-University Students Federation. 150,000 young people are in it. And they're just one of the groups that have been at the protest this year in Sri Lanka. Police want to arrest him and his friends for their role in the protests. So they've been sleeping in classrooms, hiding from authorities. Our constitution is like a dictatorship that doesn't represent the rights of citizens. We need a system where the people can be part of governance. The struggle isn't over. Even if we are arrested, others will take the struggle forward. They can arrest us, but they can't stop us. Sri Lankans like Vasantha were protesting every day for four months. And things peaked on July 9th when thousands of them took over government buildings like their president, Gautabe Rajapaksa's house. You probably saw the wild videos of protesters swimming in his pool. They accused him and his family of bankrupting the country, leading to an economic crisis that stripped people of fuel, food and power. Then Mr Rajapaksa quit. It was a massive moment. This is a peaceful protest, democratic expression, asking for a change, a just change in the society of Sri Lanka. That's Catholic priest Father G. Wanthapiris. Side note, it's pretty crazy there are priests on the front line of this movement, nuns and Buddhist monks as well. Anyway, now a new president has taken over. His name is Ranul Vikramasinghe. And since then, more than 150 protesters have been arrested, forcing people like Vasantha and Father Pyrrhus into hiding. Now what they are doing is terribly curtailing our freedom of gathering, freedom of expression, and we are being hunted. We are being hunted. 
While I'm meeting these protesters, you can feel that some of them are scared. Others are ready to keep going. I'm prepared for this uh, mentally and spiritually because I knew right from the beginning with this protest movement that we'll have to face the consequences. I spend time with the protesters underground, but a couple of weeks later, they decide to get back on the streets. And we're there for the first big protest since this crackdown started. There have been busloads and busloads of people arriving here. The crowd is really gathering and they're going to march through the centre of Colombo soon. As the protesters start marching down a main road of Colombo, they're orderly, they stick to one lane. There are students, teachers, monks, and they're calling for a systemic change in Sri Lanka where the president doesn't have so much power and they want Ranul Vikramasinghe to stand down. We declare that we are not afraid of you, Ranul Vikramasinghe. We will not bow our heads to that oppression. If you want to play games, we are ready to play games. Up ahead, though, things are about to escalate. The march is just behind me. Right over here is a wall of police. There are two tear gas vans and they're both just stopped. It's a bit of a stalemate, but they're going to have to collide at some point. All of the students have now sat down in the middle of the road and they're tear gassing now. The police tear gas protesters, they clear them out, making arrests as they go. This is Sri Lanka's former Human Rights Commissioner, Ambika Satpananathan. One does not understand why the government would abuse state resources, particularly during an economic crisis, to crack down on peaceful protests. I get a message during the protest that Vasantha, the student leader we met earlier, has been arrested. He and two other student protesters have been charged with terrorism. And it's been personally signed off by the president, Ranul Vikramasinghe. I met with him and he says he wants things to be stable again. Do you think that arresting people and cracking we, down we, is going we, to We, we arrest people who broke the law. Everything has been done legally. I, I am not the one who does it. It's been left to the police like in your country, and the police have decided to charge them. Mr Vikramasinghe has been able to get a tentative deal to get nearly $3 billion to fix Sri Lanka's economic crisis. But he'll have to change things first, and that could mean raising taxes and cutting jobs. Uh, there will be pain, but I, I hope uh, that it will be for a short period. Protesters have told me they'll keep fighting until Sri Lanka becomes a better place. I'm prepared for this uh, mentally and spiritually because I knew right from the beginning with this protest movement that we'll have to face the consequences. Hack on Triple J. That story by the ABC's South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias. The full foreign correspondent doco is up right now on YouTube and you can head to Hack's Instagram to check it out. It is really powerful. I've seen it. Really encourage you to watch it. To tell us more, Avani's actually with us now. Hey, Av, so good to have you back on Hack. Hey, Dave, how are you? I'm well, and look, I'm glad that you're okay, actually, because it sounds like you've been in some pretty intense situations covering this story over the past few months. How full-on has it been reporting this on the ground in Sri Lanka? Dave, it's been 
quite a weird situation because obviously I've been covering this story all year. I've come on hack. I've spoken to you about these crazy protests that we've just heard about. But now under this new president, as you've just heard, there is this crackdown going on. And it's pretty strange as a journalist when you end up getting caught up in the action and the story. We're meant to be these sort of outside observers, but sometimes it's inevitable. And that's what's happened in Sri Lanka over the last month. After I interviewed the president, you just heard a little snippet of it there. Things got a bit tense because I did challenge him on why this crackdown was happening. I asked him what he was doing and he had a pretty valid answer. He said he said he wanted to bring back stability to Sri Lanka, which has been struggling for so many months. He sees this as the solution to these problems. And then the next day we were going on with our shoot. We were going to meet a protester, one of the young students you heard there, Vasantha, and we were going to meet him. And then this strange situation happened where police just pulled our car over. So it was me, our camera crew, our local producers on the ground. And we thought, okay, maybe this is just a usual traffic thing. Uh, Maybe the driver was speeding. And then suddenly these police officers, these really senior police officers started questioning us. I showed them our IDs. He said that we were concealing someone in our car, potentially hiding someone. So he started searching. More police turned up. There was about six of them at this point. Uh, And then they just kept searching. Obviously they found nothing. And then they sort of said, okay, we found nothing. Let's move on. And then we kept driving about five minutes down the road. We were like, okay, that was a weird situation. Wonder what happened there. And then another group of police officers pulls us over. They ask us the exact same questions. They search us. They find nothing. And it was pretty spooky and pretty strange, Dave. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? You don't have that kind of experience or access if you're not on the ground. And you're one of the few Western journalists that's kind of there reporting on this stuff. You mentioned interviewing the president. That's huge, obviously. I'm wondering, are the politicians in Sri Lanka wanting to speak to the media? Like, is it hard to get an interview like that? Or are they really keen to get out there and show the world that everything's under control? Well, it depends which politician you're speaking about, but certainly this new president, Ronald Vikramasinghe, he's so keen to speak to us because he wants to basically get international support from countries like Australia. He wants to be seen as a legitimate leader and a legitimate country. But these protesters are saying he's undemocratic, he's doing the wrong thing by cracking down on people. And what we've seen as well since he took power is some pressure on journalists who have been reporting locally there. We've seen a few uh, journalists from the BBC asked for their vision to be taken off them. And That may not seem like a big deal, journalists being questioned, but what it goes to show, according to experts that we've spoken to, is this kind of climate of intimidation and fear. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with the ABC's South Asia correspondent and your former host here on Hack, Avani Dias, about a big story that she's got on the crisis in Sri Lanka. What's happening there after those huge protests that we've been seeing this year? Av, what about the day-to-day pressures and 
um, experiences that were really, really deeply affecting people in Sri Lanka, cost of living, all of that. Is it still as intense as it was a few months ago? It's been such a horrible crisis, Dave, and you don't think about this, right? You think, oh, economy tanking, what could that even mean? We have cost of living pressures in Australia, people are facing those, but this is the worst example of that, what's happened in Sri Lanka, food and fuel cut off. And what's happened over the last month or so is that Sri Lanka's got a, a bit of money from a, from countries like India who've sent them a few million dollars for, for a bit of fuel. So then that cuts down these massive fuel queues that people have been waiting in for days just to fill up their cars. But then that lasts for maybe a week, maybe two, and then that money runs out and things go back to the way they were and that's where they're at at the moment. So it's this ebbing and flowing. Things get okay for a little bit, then they get really bad again. And so what the new president's trying to get is this bailout from the International Monetary Fund, an organisation which can give out money to struggling countries, but they want Sri Lanka to prove they're changing all these problems, these issues around corruption and so on. And that's a really big task for Sri Lanka. It's going to cause a lot of pain for people on the ground. The president acknowledged that to me in his interview with me. And so that's now the the fear for the president, for the government is if people feel that pain, are they just going to take back to the streets? and try to kick him out again. Yeah, definitely something to watch. And Av, what about the former president? Like, do we know what's happened to him? That's such a good question, Dave. Gautar Bear Rajapaksa, he's the one that was ousted when everyone jumped in his pool. He's part of this old school political dynasty. And he fled the country after the, the his house was taken over and everything happened in July. And just about a week ago, he returned to Sri Lanka. And this is a big deal, Dave, because he was sort of hiding out in different countries like Singapore and Thailand. And now he's back in Sri Lanka. And the question for protesters, for ordinary Sri Lankans is, uh, will he try to get back into politics? Will he use a backdoor while things have quietened down to, to bring him and his family back into the forefront of this country's leadership? And if that happens, the year's work, what these protesters have done would go down the drain. Now, it's totally unclear if that will happen at this stage, but it would be a big move against the protesters. So things are getting heated. Protesters are getting back on the streets. They're determined. They're still fighting. But it's definitely a new atmosphere and we'll have to keep watching to see where this all goes. Yeah, it's a huge story and we're so lucky to have you on the ground covering it for us. ABC News, South Asia correspondent Avani Dias, thanks so much for speaking with us here on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, a lot of thoughts coming through on this one, on what's happening in Sri Lanka. Somebody says classic police intimidation tactics. Another person says journalism is under threat globally. And yeah, that's why stories like this that are told from the ground are so important. And I want to stress, go watch Av's story. You won't be disappointed. The YouTube link on Hack's Instagram, this doco also on ABC TV tonight. You can watch it there and you can read the story right now on ABC News Online. Hack. It's kind of a hard topic to sort of discuss because I don't think you can sort of hide from history. We've got to acknowledge it in bits and pieces, but it is also, we do live in a different time. On Triple J. The New South Wales Snowy Mountains, beautiful part of the country. Maybe you've been there recently, done a bit of skiing. It's also really well known for its multicultural history. 
because back in the 1950s, thousands of migrants from around the world moved there to build the Snowy Mountains Scheme. It's a massive hydroelectricity irrigation complex. It's described as one of the civil engineering wonders of the modern world. Nine power stations, 16 dams, hundreds of k's of aqueducts and tunnels. And it was back-breaking work for those migrants. Some of my family worked on it. Understandably, the local town of Cooma is really proud of this history. And to honour those workers, it still flies the flags of 30 different countries to represent all the different nationalities. But those flags include an old South African flag that dates back to the apartheid era, a time of racial segregation. And some, including South African officials, are frustrated the council refuses to change it. Kira Proust has more. It makes no sense for, in 2022, for that flag which represented the suffering of millions of people, which has been recognised as a global crime against humanity by the United Nations in a country that is now free and has its own flag that has been flying for almost 30 years. That's Perth-based South African writer and advocate Sasonki Misamung. She says Snowy Monero Regional Council's decision to still fly this apartheid-era flag is unacceptable. The apartheid era was defined by racist segregation policies that divided the white minority and black majority in South Africa for much of the 1900s. One of the most famous anti-apartheid figures was Nelson Mandela, who fought against the racist system and was a key figure in negotiating for the freedom and equality of all South Africans in the 1990s. Chatting to some locals standing beneath the controversial flag on the main street of Cooma, it's clear that they're divided over what it represents. It's kind of a hard topic to sort of discuss because I don't think you can sort of hide from history. We've got to acknowledge it in bits and pieces, but it is also we do live in a different time. Things have changed, perspectives have changed and stuff, so I'm for and against. If you take away the political part of it and look at the history side of it, I, I feel it still should be displayed. No, I think the modern day flag should be there. They should replace it. It still means the same thing in terms of representing the people who were from South Africa who worked here, which is what those flags are about. Nearly 30 flags were erected on Cooma's main street by the local council in 1959 to represent the many nationalities who came from abroad to work on the Snowy Mountains scheme. The South African flag is not the only one that is now out of date. Flags from other now non-existent nations like Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia also fly above the town. The council has long stood by its decision to fly these flags and it's a view shared by the new Snowy Monero Regional Mayor, Narelle Davis. We can learn from history. We can't change history. The flags are a historical reminder of the time and the countries that all of these wonderful people came from post-World War II. South Africa's High Commission has been asking for the flag to be changed for nearly a decade. In a statement, it says the old flag is a symbol of division, whereas the new flag represents unity, adding it hopes its strong request for council to change it will be adhered to. This conversation is one of many currently being had across the world as people grapple with how to deal with the contentious history reflected in our statues and other relics of the past. One of the most important things to remember about history is that even in the moment in which history was being lived, it was being experienced differently by different people. And so what we have is these official narratives about what gets put up, the flag or the statue of the victor. And what we haven't had until now is engagement 
by the very people who were oppressed by those people who, who were represented in the statues, or for whom the flag meant a completely different and completely terrible experience. And so to have a country like Australia, which says that it welcomes people from around the world and professes to be a multicultural uh, society, then what multiculturalism genuinely means is to engage with those different histories and to engage with what history meant to different people in different ways. So no, I think it's completely unacceptable that we not have the conversation. And I think it's really fantastic to have these opportunities to interrogate and then to shift. Advocate Sasonke Misamung hopes having this conversation will lead to change on the ground and believes it doesn't need to be divisive. A challenge to history can in fact be an opportunity for us to become closer to one another because we reach a shared understanding that certain parts of history were invisible to certain people in the past and now we're making all those pieces visible. And if you can see the whole truth, why wouldn't you do the right thing? Hack on Triple J. South African writer Sisonke Misamang ending that story by Kira Proust and Adrian Reardon. Really interesting stuff. Hack, a climber, surfer and lifelong environmentalist who, who just gave away his estimated $3 billion business on Triple J. You know, we often hear world leaders, really rich people, companies weighing in on global problems like climate change or poverty. And you'll hear them say, we all need to do more. And sometimes you're probably thinking, well, go on then. You can do more. Put your money where your mouth is. Well, today, one of the world's most recognisable outdoor clothing and equipment brands, Patagonia, has done that on a whole new level. The guy and family behind Patagonia has announced they're basically giving the company away and most, if not all, of the profits are now going to go to fighting climate change. To explain a bit more what's going on, Here's Georgia Hitch. We just uh, admit that we're polluters. We're we're using up non-renewable resources, and we're making uh, you know consumer products, and we're part of the problem. So we're trying to be on the process of minimizing the damage what we do. That's Avon Chouinard, the man who founded Patagonia. And no, this isn't him speaking from this year or even recently. It's from 2005. When the 83-year-old set up Patagonia in the 1970s, partly out of his own love for mountaineering and the outdoors, from the very get-go he had the environment in mind and a lot of the decisions since then have made him and the company a leader in the field. You know, you've heard of recycle and uh, reuse, stuff like that. You also have to consider refuse. Refuse to buy something just because, you know, if you don't need it, don't buy it. So with all that in mind, his decision today is maybe a little less surprising but it's no less important. Patagonia has a new owner, but this is not your typical business transaction. A climber, surfer, and lifelong environmentalist who, who just gave away his estimated $3 billion business. Yep, Yvonne Chouinard and his family, who all still have stakes in the company, put out a statement today announcing that, starting from now, the money Patagonia makes will be going straight to fighting the climate crisis instead of into their pockets. To do that, the ownership of the business has been kind of broken up into two lots. One is a trust to make sure that this structure is sealed into the future and no one can come in and undo this move. The second is called the Holdfast Collective, which is basically a not-for-profit set up by Patagonia. This is where any leftover profit the company has that hasn't been reinvested in the company will end up, and it'll be focused solely on funding efforts to tackle climate change. How much money goes into it every year will depend on how well Patagonia is doing, but the company reckons it'll be around $100 million a year. 
Yvonne's known for being a pretty unique guy and a self-described reluctant businessman. And he says this is about him doing his part for the planet. Not a lot of people understand how serious we are about saving this planet. I'm dead serious. Yvonne isn't the only billionaire to promise big for the climate recently. Bill Gates says his massive pledges will see him drop out of the rich list in the years ahead. And Aussie billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks and his wife have promised to give $1.5 billion of their wealth to climate causes by 2030. But Patagonia's move does seem to be on a different level. The question now is will we see more of it? Hack on Triple J. Yeah, good question. Georgia Hitch with that story and people are texting in. Someone says there really is a great tool to build a world not reliant on the generosity of billionaires. It's called tax. Yeah, fair enough. I want to dive into this a bit more now. Someone who knows a lot about getting rich people to give money away is Jack Heath. He's the CEO of Philanthropy Australia and he's with us now. G'day, Jack. Thanks for coming on Hack. It's a pleasure, Dave. Firstly, we know that a lot of people across the country are struggling at the moment. We're talking about cost of living all the time. What about rich people, though? Are there a lot of rich people in Australia at the moment? Well, there actually are. I mean, figures that we had out just a couple of months ago are suggesting we've got over 130 billionaires in Australia, which is almost incomprehensible. Um, So it is, you know, and this is one of the challenges is that we've got increases in in wealth and income, and that's something we really need to address if we're going to build a sustainable society. So how do you get a rich person, a billionaire, to want to give money away? Is it generally something that they come to you and they volunteer, or does it take a bit of work, a bit of negotiation? Oh, look, I don't think anyone sort of, you know, sort of you can go and get them to do that. I think what happens is that it's when they see their peers, people like them giving money away, that that's the thing that really inspires them. So, for example... You know, we all know about Bill Gates and his money. Uh, Warren Buffett, who was a friend of his, when he saw what Bill Gates, you know, felt like and was doing well when he was giving away money, that was what inspired him. So it's very much about seeing what your, you know, your colleagues or the people, you know, who are your peers. And that's why we just need to communicate more and more of these stories of wealthy people who are giving money away. But I must say, it's not just about the wealthy people. It needs to happen right across the society. Right. I mean, we just heard about this huge move from Patagonia. Were you surprised by that? And do you expect to see more of this kind of thing in the years ahead? Look, we're, we're seeing that already. We're seeing, you know, in Australia, for example, you've got, you know, um, Mel and Cliff from um, Canva who are looking to, you know, give away, you know, 10 plus billion dollars. Um, We've seen, you know, Andrew Forrest. Um, we've obviously seen Paul Ramsey when he died. He left over $3 billion. We're starting to see people who are actually leaving huge amounts of money on a scale that's never really operated before. So, yes, I, I think we can expect to see more of these large gifts coming, which which is a good thing. I hate to be sceptical, but are there, like, tax reasons as well why this is a good idea to, to give money away? And what about, like, the uh, expectation that wealthy people should give back these days? Do you think society's changing and it's just expected? Well, I think the thing is that, you know, you've got the um, government, um, current government and the previous government who are going about major tax cuts and, um, and people were actually voted them in. So I think the general population is saying, it doesn't want to be taxed more. But in, in the case of Patagonia, what's really significant here is in, in the US structure, these guys are not going to get any tax benefit whatsoever. In fact, the way in which they've done the deal, they're going to have to pay about $10 million themselves. So, wow. you know, th- this is not what the guys are doing in Patagonia. Um, this is just, you know, literally giving it away. But it's going to be like, you know, $100 million a year.
Well, I guess for some businesses, there probably is an advantage to doing this in the sense that um, consumers, us, when we see a company do something really big, maybe we're more likely to um, shop there and to give them our business. Yeah, look, I think that's very clear. And, you know, in the case of a company like Patagonia, um, people know about the values that sit behind the organisation, their approach in terms of, you know, reducing any emissions, in terms of recycling. And I think it's very clear, you know, particularly younger people or whatever wanting to say, look, you know, I want to buy things that I know are not doing any harm to the environment. They're going to be good for people. And so I think, you know, what's happening now is to be good for the environment, good for people is actually good for business. And I think that's a big shift that's happening. And I think Patagonia is a great example of it. Jack, is it um, common for people to make big donations, billionaires, and not want it to be made public? Do you have them often say to you, oh, I just want to keep this private? Yeah, look, there's there's a couple of people, and I can sort of think of one of people. people in particular, <laughs> right? And they're, you know, they're giving away um, about $1.5 billion over the next eight years, and they've worked so hard to make sure that no one knows that they're doing it. So, yes, you will get examples. I think one of the things, though, is that in Australia, we, we don't like to big note ourselves, by and large, and I think it's really important, though, that more people share their stories of giving money away, not to big note themselves, but just to show that when you do this, you just get enormous benefit yourself as well as helping other people. So, you know, in a time of pandemics, it's about how do we try and infect people with the joy of philanthropy or the joy of giving it away? And I think more people are starting to realise, you know, what a difference that makes to themselves as well as to, you know, the community and the planet. That's a good way of putting it. And just quickly, Jack, we've only got 30 seconds, but how does Australia rate in terms of philanthropy compared to the rest of the world? Uh, we're not doing too well. So our colleagues across the ditch in New Zealand are almost, um, you know, much more generous than us. But we need to change some of the regulations because a lot of charities um, don't actually get tax deductions. So we're a little bit behind in terms of our peers, but but room to make up. And the government at least is talking about doubling giving by 2030, which is a good thing. Right. It's so interesting. It was great to get your insight on this. We'd love to speak to you again. Jack Heath from Philanthropy Australia. Thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. Very interesting conversation. We loved to hear from Jack Heath from Philanthropy Australia and to get all of your comments as well. So many came through the text line. That is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. We've got the shake-up tomorrow. I'll be back then. See ya.